Ohio needs nurses now. Xavier University is offsetting the demand by offering individuals with non-nursing bachelor's degrees an accelerated path to the profession. With locations in Cincinnati, Cleveland, and Columbus, our ABSN program enables adult learners like you to earn a respected Bachelor of Science in Nursing in 16 months. So what are you waiting for? There's no better time than now to step up and become a nurse. Search Xavier ABSN to apply. El Todos Hablamos McDonald's Dio. Porque cuando están decidiendo qué ordenar y la tía Carmen te dice... McNuggets, mijo. Y una de las hamburguesas con esa salsita. ¿Sabes? Ya tú sabes que eso significa una Big Mac. Y lo sabes porque tú también amas esa salsita. Hay un meal para cada cena familiar en McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como McNuggets de 10 piezas y una Big Mac por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar. Producto individual a precio regular. And I want to actually speak on the subject this morning called Beware of Intruders. Beware of Intruders. And I want to start off by just sharing a, a story, an illustration. There was once a farmer, and um, in, he decided he wanted to plant some fruit trees. So he planted one fruit tree close to a rubbish tip. For those who are watching online, you don't know what a rubbish tip is. If you're in North America in particular, it's a garbage dump, all right? So a garbage dump, that's what we say. A garbage dump, a trash heap, whatever. But a rubbish tip. So he planted one close to a rubbish tip. And the purpose of him doing this was to actually veil or to hide that, that just unsightly tip. And um, so he, he planted the one tree there, the one fruit tree. Then he planted another fruit tree on another side of his property, close to a cool mountain stream that just came and ran down uh, his fields. Now, after a while, to some time, the tree began to grow. The trees began to grow. They began to blossom, and then eventually they bore fruit. So one day the farmer went out. He said, I'm going to inspect the fruit on my trees. I'm looking forward to, to tasting it, to see what it's like. So he, first of all, went to the tree that was planted near the rubbish tip or the landfill site. And he walked up to the tree. Tree looked good. The fruit was a little bit deformed, you know. And But he thought, it's probably all right. So he sunk his teeth into this piece of fruit, and he ate it. And, oh, it was disgusting. It was bitter. He spit out the piece of fruit, and he cast it aside. And he said, ah, oh, you can't eat that at all. So he said, I wonder what it's like, my other tree is like, on the other side of my property. So he walked over. And as he got there, he looked at it. It looked good. And he took a bite of that fruit, and it was amazing. It tasted so good, so delicious, so fresh. And he decided, hey, you know, I'm going to take some of this fruit home, give it to my family members. And they all partook of the fruit, and they loved it. Well, I'm telling you this story because there's something very powerful as it relates to our Um, relationship with God, our spiritual journey, and that is the truth of the matter is that we learn from this from this illustration that the fruit that was produced by these two trees was greatly affected by the nutrition of the roots. In other words, where the trees were planted respectively determined the fruit. And that's exactly the same for you and for me today. Where we are planted will determine the fruit that we bear. 
As disciples of Christ, we have a choice, don't we? Where are we going to plant our roots? Because where we plant our roots determines the fruit that we bear. We can plant ourselves in the toxic soil of this world and bear the bitter fruit of addiction, pain, turmoil, confusion, or we can plant our roots by the cool, refreshing streams of Christ and bear his fruit of righteousness, peace, and joy. You know, we produce, the Bible says we either produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, or we manifest the bitter fruit of our sinful nature and selfish desires, which is called in Galatians chapter 5, the works of the flesh. Paul says sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. And he continues, and this is what he says. He says, let me tell you again, as I've told you before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's like Paul's saying, don't be deceived. Don't think you can live that way and all's good. I'm a child of God. Paul says, if you live that way, if you practice that, if that's your lifestyle, if that's something habitual that you're engaging in, don't be deceived. Those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we've been talking about our soul. God created us as trying beings. We have a spirit, a soul, and a body. And often, you know, as Christians, I think if the really spiritual Christians, you know, we focus everything spiritual, right? Everything is about our spirit. Everything is about the spirit realm. And that's, you know, we need to be spiritually minded, obviously. The Bible's very clear about that. But sometimes we become too spiritual. We become uh, hyper-spiritual, and we forget the fact that we also have another component, another part in us, and it's called our soul. That's our mind. That's our emotions. It's our will. That's our desires, our affections, and God has created us as human beings to experience those things and to think and to feel and, and to, you know, experience things sensually, so to speak. And we need to recognize that our soul can be used either as a weapon of righteousness or a weapon of evil. We can use our soul in such a way that it emanates the very person of Christ, the very nature of God, the goodness of the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is seen not only in terms of our personal relationship with God, but how we interact with others. That's what it's really all about, actually. How do we interact with others? Do we love people? Are we patient? Are we kind? Are we, you know, uh, full of peace? Are we full of joy? All of these things reflect, you know, the realm of our soul. And how are we in our soul? Of course, we have a body. We need to look after our bodies. That's very, very important. I think the older you get, the more aware you become of that. And uh, that's very, very important. But we recognize, and this is my focus, maybe one day we'll, we'll do a series on uh, the spirit, I don't know, the body. What the, This series is on the soul, right? So the soul is what we're talking about. And that our soul, First Thessalonians 5.23, may the God of peace, right? He's sanctify you wholly or entirely. May your entire spirit, soul, and body be sanctified. May it be kept blameless in the coming of Jesus Christ, your spirit, your soul, and your body. Jesus talked a lot about the soul. I love 
that verse in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus is inviting people to come to him. You know, he's really speaking to those who are exasperated, who are wearied by sin. They've been living a sinful lifestyle. You know, they've been tormented by the devil and, and they've just worn out. But he's also speaking to the religious. And he's saying, you know, you've been trying to find peace in your religion like the Pharisees. You work so hard. You do all of these things, but it's not bringing you any closer to God. It's not bringing rest to your soul. So Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest for your souls if you come to Jesus. So this rest, this peace that he talks about is found in him. It's found in a personal relationship with him. It's found in the place of being surrendered to Christ completely yielded to him. And there's so often the conflict that we experience in our life, the inner turmoil that we're going through as Christians is because we're not at peace with God. Before we can know the peace of God, we have to be at peace with God. And Jesus, of course, is our peace. He's the prince of peace. He's broken down the partition that divides us and Jesus became peace for us so that we can be reconciled to the Father, that we can know that peace. But it all comes through righteousness. You see, righteousness is the focus of the New Testament. Peace is a byproduct of righteousness. And Jesus made us righteous through his death and resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about the one who didn't sin, the one who never knew sin, became sin or sin offering for us. That we who did not know, who had not experienced righteousness, but all we knew was sin. All we knew was evil and, and our hearts and our minds so that we could become the absolute righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. It's imputed to us as a gift. The Bible calls it in Romans 5, 17, the, it, says the, it says if you've experienced an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, it's so that you will rule in life. So it's a gift, yes. Its purpose is so that we would rule, that we would reign, that we would live in a place of dominion and authority because that's what it all goes back to, doesn't it? In Genesis, God created us to be in his image and likeness and to exercise dominion on the earth. Sin shall have no dominion over you, Paul said in Romans 6, 14. You know, we're not, the enemy's not to have dominion over us. He said, I put all things under your feet in uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse number 5. He's given us authority. He's given us power, and we are to use that and exercise that, but it comes through righteousness. It comes through righteousness. Now, we need to plant our roots in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is, even though we've been made righteous, we still must live righteously. There's a call to live righteously. For example, 
When you study the book of Romans, Paul's talking about how we are called to live in righteousness and, and how um, Christ made us righteous. He calls it the gift of righteousness and that all have sinned, Jew and Gentile, and no one can be righteous on their own merit. But then he says this. He says, look, there's a, some of you may misinterpret because I'm preaching grace. You might think that I'm preaching that it's okay to continue in sin so that grace may abound. I can continue in living in sin. I can do what I want because it magnifies the grace of God. But Paul is very clear. That's not the case. That's not what I'm saying. So in the sixth chapter, Romans verse 1, he says, am I saying that you can continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who've died to sin continue to live in it? And so he's very, very clear that if we've died to sin in Christ Jesus, then we have a new nature. And the new normal for us is not to live in sin like it once was before we knew Christ, but now the new normal for us is to live in righteousness. We may mess up, we may sin, we will, but ultimately that's not our norm. That's not what God expects of us. He now expects of us to be different. And I love the fact that John, in, in 1 John chapter 3, Verse number eight, he talks about how God has called us to live in righteousness. And he says, he who sins is of the devil. But the person who is righteous is actually uh, of God. And so he's saying that we need to continue in righteousness. The, the purpose of the Son of God being manifested was that he might destroy the works of the devil. He might destroy sin in our lives so that we can live in righteousness. And so I believe it's in the preceding verse, in verse 7, he says in the King James, King James, did I say King Jims? Well, that's good. King Jim, King Jimmy. In the King Jimmy, he says, he who doeth righteousness is righteous. He who doeth. Isn't that, that just like is so anointed. There's something special about that doeth righteousness, right? Okay, so he who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. So there's imputed righteousness. It's a gift from God. We receive it when we're born again. But then there's practical or pragmatic righteousness. So now that I'm righteous, it's only normal for me to live in a righteous way to live in holiness, to live in purity. It's only normal. My, but the seed of God is in me. His very nature is in me. And he not only gives me his nature, but he gives me the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And that's what grace is all about. That's what righteousness is all about. Grace empowers us to live righteously. Now, I was thinking the past couple of weeks, you know, the Bible talks about roots quite a bit, doesn't it? You know, we, we read about the root of bitterness, for example. There's this verse in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. In the King James Version, it says, the love of money is the root of all evil. The love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil, right? How many know that the love of money is a root of evil? Okay, did you just hear what I said? I said it's a root of evil. I didn't say it's the root of evil. In fact, if you read it in the original Greek, what it says is the love of money is root evil. That's all it says. 
Love of money is root evil. There's no, there's no article, you know, definite or indefinite articles like we have in English. So it's up to the translators, the interpreters, to be able to determine what is really being said here. And for that reason, if you look at the New King James Version, if you look at the NIV, it translates this, the verse this way. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root, but it's a root of all kinds of evil. So the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So, but what is the root of evil? Is there really one thing that is the root of all evil? I believe there is. And it's not the love of money. It goes deeper than that because the love of money is absolutely a symptom of this one thing. So I want to start reading from the book of James, chapter 3. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, starting at verse number 13. Hear what James says about the root of all evil. If you are wise and you understand God's ways, prove it. Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, prove it. Prove it that you're wise and you understand God's ways. Prove it. How? By living an honorable life. Doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Notice that. Good works, yeah, but humility that comes from wisdom. But if you're bitterly jealous, uh uh-oh, and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and, woo, demonic All right, guys, here we go. Here's the root of all evil. For wherever there is jealousy or envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every kind of evil. Every kind of evil. Not just all kinds of evil or different kinds of evil, but every kind of evil flows out of the heart that is purposed to live for itself, the man, the woman that has selfish ambition. May I submit to us this morning that the root of all evil is selfish ambition. In fact, did you know that the slogan of Satanism is, whatsoever thou wilt, do it? It's in the Satanic Bible. Whatsoever thou wilt, do it. Alistair Crowley who, if you guys remember the, the Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Clubs band, right, on that cover, Alistair Crawley's the bald, fat guy. Alistair Crawley was an occultist. He's demon-possessed. He first went to Egypt into the pyramids and called upon the spirits to enter him and fill him. Jimmy Page, who was the lead guitarist for Led Zeppelin, purchased Alistair Crawley's castle in Scotland. You see, all of this stuff is rooted in the occult. Alistair Crawley wrote much, and in his writings, he said the exact same thing. He said, whatever you want to do, do it. Whatever you want to do. That's the slogan of Satanism. Anton Zander LeVay, who wrote the Satanic Bible, put that in there. Whatsoever thou wilt, do it. But what did Jesus say? I came from heaven to earth not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He said, Father, 
not my will, but yours be done. Again, he said, for my will is, he said, for my meat, my food is to do his will, to finish his work. He spoke of this constantly. I don't do anything on my own, but I only do those things I see my father doing. You see, guys, when you think about Satanism and you say, well, what's the slogan of Satanism? Oh, sacrifice animals to the devil. You know, do all of these things. But the, it's very, very sinister, but yet very subtle at the same time. Whatever thou wilt, do it. Whatever you want to do, just do it. Now, later on, they tried to, to water it down a little bit and said, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. But that's not what it actually states in the original writings of Satanism witchcraft that formed into Satanism. You see, whatever you want to do, do it. Why? Because that's the root of all evil. That's what opens up uh, the people to the satanic demonic realm. Do you know that? Think about this. The Bible says that when Judas Iscariot had purposed in his heart that he was not going to do the will of God, but he was going to do his will, and he was going to betray Jesus. And the Bible says that the moment that he did that, the moment that he dipped the bread in the cup, that Satan entered him. Satan entered him. When we think about all of the evil, heinous, you know, things that happened, and all, and all, there's terrible things, people killing people and, and all of these things, but it all goes back to this selfish ambition and jealousy or envy is connected to that as well so we have to recognize that i want what i want when i want it is actually the antithesis of what it means to be a christian not my will but yours be done it even says in philippians paul says don't put yourself ahead of others but esteem others are more important than yourself. So put people first. Now, I'm not saying, guys, that you don't look after yourself. I'm not saying that you, you know, you just do so many things that you end up, you know, trying to help people that you yourself are, are, are dying. I'm not saying that. We have to recognize that it relates to our relationship with God first, right? We love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then we love our neighbors ourselves. We're not loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We can't help others. It's like being on an airplane and, you know, you're, you're about to depart and they're giving you the, the instructions and how to prepare just in case the vehicle, you know, the plane has to crash, make an emergency landing. Then what, you know, one of the things is in the unlikely event that the cabin loses pressure, you know, an oxygen mask will drop. Now, if you have an infant with you, uh, make sure that you put your oxygen mask on first. Because why? Because you can't help someone else if you're suffocating. And this is the way it is when it comes to our relationship with God. How are we going to help other people? Like, if you don't know how to swim, how are you going to rescue someone who's drowning? The point is we have to be strong. We have to make sure that we are in a place where we are receiving life from God. That the, spirit, the breath of the Spirit of God is strengthening us and we're breathing in and we're taking in the oxygen of the Spirit of God first before we can help other people. Amen? This is very, very important. Very, very important. All right. The opposite 
This is what he says. He says, listen, when you decide, when I decide as a person, I want to live for sensuality, for sin, for selfish ambition. I want to do what I want to do. You know, I'm going to go to church and, you know, ask God, act like real religious, act like I'm a good Christian, but really in our hearts, by our actions, we're living for self. We're living for our desires. And what happens, the Bible says this, it says that we will experience disorder and evil of every kind. We will experience, ultimately, disorder and evil of every kind. The opposite of disorder and evil of every kind is peace, joy, and righteousness, which, by the way, is the essence of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's look at this. Disorder. The word disorder can be translated confusion, instability, a state of disorder or disturbance. Remember in 1 Corinthians 14, I believe it's verse 22, Paul says, for God is not the author of confusion, but he's the author of peace. It's the same word. God is not the author of confusion or disorder. So God is not the author of confusion or disorder, instability, disturbance, confusion. The opposite of disorder is peace. And the Greek word for peace means tranquility, rest, harmony. Listen to this, exemption from the rage and havoc of war. Exemption from the rage and havoc of war. That's what peace is. He makes wars to cease. What? He restores my soul. He is a God who brings peace into our lives. This is what he's speaking about, the peace of God. Evil of every kind. What's the opposite of the evil of every kind? Complete righteousness. Complete righteousness. Righteousness covers every area in our life where the enemy has infiltrated, when the intruder has come in and violated. The enemy is uh, one who, who will do this if, we, if we're not careful. We have to be intentional about guarding ourselves and protecting ourselves. And so what do we do? We're, we're, to, we're to seek first, Matthew 6, 33, what? The kingdom and what? Righteousness. Didn't you notice that? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Now, in the Greek language, it literally is saying, seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness of that kingdom. So in other words, it's not saying these are two separate things. It's saying that when you really seek after the kingdom, you're going to experience the righteousness of that kingdom. And what is righteousness? Well, it's being right with God. It's being right with God. It's being at peace with God. It's knowing that you're in a right relationship with him because of what Jesus did at the cross. But it's also experiencing all of the things that are rightfully yours rightfully yours. They're rightfully yours and mine, not because we deserve it, but because he promised it by covenant. And when we live in that place where we understand he's our righteousness, he's our peace, 
and he is the one who is the new covenant, then we can expect to receive all of the things that come from his kingdom and his righteousness because, not because of our deserving it, but because he did it for us. Now, our reasonable response, our spiritual act of worship, Romans 12 verse 1 says, in view of God's great mercies, what should be your reasonable response or your spiritual act of worship? To offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. So God's done all this for me. So what's the only appropriate response to offer myself, my whole body, spirit, and soul as a sacrifice to him, holy and acceptable. I'm going to surrender all. I'm going to give you every part of me, and this is only reasonable. It's not like, ooh, you know, now I'm being obedient to God. Look how righteous, you know, look how holy I am. It's reasonable. We're only doing what God is, expects of us to do, and he's giving us the grace and the power to be able to do this. So we seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom? Well, Jesus told us elsewhere in Matthew 6, verse 10, in what is we call the Lord's Prayer, but it really isn't the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. I don't know why we call it that. It was in this manner ought you to pray, Jesus said, Our Father which in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy what? Will be done, Right? on earth as it is in heaven. Now, some uh, commentators would refer to that verse and say, well, that's speaking of, you know, the eschatological coming of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ where there will one day be a reign and rule of righteousness when perfect, the perfect will of God is being done. And, and I understand there is a sense in that, in which that is true, but there is a sense in which we are to pray for that to be the reality in this life, in this time, that the will of God will be done. So Jesus preached the kingdom, didn't he? He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? The kingdom of heaven is here. You know, as you go, he said, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 10, verse 7. And when we're saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we're putting a stake in the ground. We're saying this territory, this place, these people belong to God, not the devil. The devil has taken them captive to do his will, but we've come here to deliver them, to emancipate them, to give them freedom because they belong to God. And so we claim this land and this territory for the kingdom of God. And now... The devil's will is no longer going to happen. God's will is going to happen. This space is going to become God's place. God is going to do something very powerful. And you just need to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, right? Because Jesus is a king. And if we want to experience the power and the provision of his kingdom, we have to be submitted, first of all, to his kingship, his lordship. You see, there's a lot of people today that talk about kingdom. I want kingdom power. I want the promise of Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, the things, the stuff, will be added, will be given to you, right? But that's not what Jesus taught. In fact, if you read Matthew 6 in the same context, he said pagans, pagans, okay? The Gentiles, meaning the people that don't know God, seek after the stuff. They seek after stuff. They worry about food. They worry about how much money am I going to make? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to survive? You know, they, they pursue 
um, monetary gain and, and all of these things. They seek after this stuff. And that's when Jesus qualifies and says, what we should really be doing is not living like these pagans, but we should be living like God's children who seek first his kingdom and righteousness. And if you're faithful to do this, the Father will be faithful to give you everything you need. But he knows our hearts. He knows if we're really, really putting him first and we're really, really wanting his will more than our own will. Because before we can say, your kingdom come, we have to be able to pray, my kingdom go. That's the truth. Before his kingdom can come, we got to make room for his kingdom, right? So our kingdom has to go. So we are under his lordship. Then the king and his kingdom is reigning over us, meeting every need we have, protecting us from our enemies. Wow, isn't that amazing? Let me show you how this works. Turn to Isaiah 32, 17 and 18. Isaiah 32, 17 and 18. I want you to see this. It says, and this righteousness, what righteousness? The righteousness that comes from God will bring peace. Yes, it will bring quietness and confidence for how long? Ever. My people will live in safety, quietly at home. They will be at rest. Now, this is awesome. This is so good. Get ready. Are you ready? Okay. First of all, he says, we live at peace because of righteousness. When we realize that righteousness is a gift from Christ, we receive it as a gift from God, but then we don't take advantage of righteousness. We don't use, you know, grace as a license for sin, but we live in righteousness, empowered by the spirit of righteousness. Then what happens at this point is we're not only righteous in terms of philosophically or positionally, but pragmatically and practically we're living in righteousness. We're living a righteous lifestyle which is, I just want to do your will, Father. I'm just trying to do my best to really know what your will is so I read your word, you know, so I can study to show myself approved to God. Like, you know what? If you get pulled over by the police for some type of traffic violation, you turn around and say to that police officer, I didn't know you couldn't turn left on a red light. Let me tell you something. In Canada, of course, we drive on the other side of the road, which... I'm finally, I think, getting used to driving on the left side of the road. But when you are in Canada and you come up to the lights, okay, there's a set of, of, of stoplights, traffic lights, whatever you call them, and it's red, you can turn right on a red light. As long as you stop and make sure there's no traffic coming, you can turn right on a red light. So what that would mean is in Australia... You come up to the lights, and it's red, but you look, nothing's coming, and you turn left on that red light like I did when I first moved here, and a picture was taken, and then I say, hey, guys, I didn't know that was wrong. I didn't know you can't do that. Are they going to just say, if I send them a letter, are they going to write me back and say, oh, we understand completely. Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay the ticket. Don't worry. No, not at all. Why? Because ignorance is not an excuse. I should have familiarized myself with the laws. 
And the way it is with God's kingdom, it's the same way when it comes to knowing the truth of God's word. We can't say, I didn't know that. My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. So we have to move into a place where we seek out the truth, the knowledge of his will. What does he expect of me? What does he want from me? Show me your ways that I may continue to find favor in your sight, Moses said. Teach me your ways so that I may walk before you with an undivided heart, David said. So we have to learn and acquire the knowledge of God and what he plans for our lives. And if we just like, well, I'm just doing my best to be a good Christian, and you'll never make it, guys. You will always be victimized and run over by the enemy. You've got to get into the word. You've got to know the truth so that you can grab a hold of that truth and apply it to your life. And that truth will protect you. That truth will make you free. So righteousness, right? And then what happens? The fruit of righteousness is this, peace. In the Hebrew, it's shalom. Shalom. What does that mean? Complete wholeness, peace, health, welfare, safety, soundness, nothing missing, nothing broken. That's the meaning of the word shalom. So you know the peace of God. Righteousness will bring peace is what Isaiah says. Yes, it's not only going to bring us peace, but it will bring us quietness. Quietness. The real meaning is to be undisturbed. It's literally... It uh, could be translated literally and figuratively, undisturbed. Often the word is used when referring to rest from war. He makes wars to cease. You know, one of the ways uh, it, commentators say it can be translated, listen to this, one whom no one harasses and harasses no one. One whom no one harasses and whom harasses no one. In other words, isn't it interesting that people that are harassed, people that are victimized, often victimize others? Isn't that true? But he's saying this quietness that will come as a result of righteousness will put you in a place where in your soul you're free from harassment. Now, again, remember the word salvation Soteria in the Greek language, going back to Luke chapter 1, verses 74 and 75, says when, when Yeshua comes, when the Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, he will give us freedom from the harassment of our enemies. That's what salvation means, freedom from the harassment of our enemies. It's a place of peace. It's a place of quietness. And then lastly, not only will this righteousness give us peace and quietness, but it will also give us confidence. Wow. You want confidence? The Bible says the righteous are as bold as a lion. Right? Oh, that's my personality. That's the way I'm. No, no, no. The righteous are as bold as a lion. So what do, we, what do you do? You don't have to read Dale Carnegie, you know, how to influence people, make friends. You need to get righteous. Get righteous. Get into the presence of God. I'm not saying you can't read that book. It's not of any value. But I'm saying it's not going to change you. Righteousness will change you. Righteousness will give you boldness. Righteousness will give you confidence. When you pursue righteousness, you'll have confidence. The word means security, boldness. And how, what does it say? Forever. It says forever. Wow, I'm bold. I'm righteous. I'm secure. I know who I am. I'm not afraid of the devil. The devil's afraid of me. Come on now. And 
You know what happens today is some people talk about humility, like you ever heard the saying that humility isn't um, thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less. And the truth is that that's what it's all about, guys. It's not like we demean ourselves. Well, I'm just this sinful scumbag, you know, and like, it's really, how would you like your kids to say that? And, and, you know, I, I get it. That's who we were. I understand that. But we can't talk that way about ourselves now because we, we are new creations in Christ Jesus. We're a kingdom of priests. We're royal, his royal property. We are uh, sons and daughters of the most high God. And the Bible is so clear that we, we can't do that. You know, so you, you see in some churches and some places, and really it's, it's a spirit of religiosity that uses false humility to try to dissuade people from walking in the revelation of their full identity. A spirit, of humili- a spirit of religiosity or religion tries to dissuade you from walking in the revelation of your full and true identity as a son or daughter of God. The point is, we were called to live like Jesus did on the earth, 1 John 2, 6. So don't be duped by the devil. Don't be duped by the devil. God wants to change the way you think. He wants to give you confidence. He wants to give you peace, cause all the turmoil in your life to cease. He wants to bring you to a a place of absolute rest in him, of quietness. But how does this happen? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that peace is inward. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Because Jesus was in some storms. Paul was in some storms. Daniel had to spend the night in a den with lions. Now, it's true that God can give us power to shut the mouths of the lions like he did David and, and Samson. But we see there's some situations, there's some circumstances in your life, some storms that you're going to go through that you're going to have to go through those storms. You're going to have to learn how to weather those storms. Because the storm is actually going to teach you who you are in Christ Jesus. And you're going to see that the peace of God is able to keep you and sustain you even in the midst of that storm. And you wonder, how is it that I have such peace? How is it that no matter what I'm going through, I just have this undying, this this transcendable peace? Because it's God's gift. So... We're going to have to learn how to sometimes weather our storms. Secondly, when you're completely surrendered and submitted to God's righteousness, do you know that really only then are you a powerful weapon to the enemy? You know that? See, the greatest weapon against the enemy is a surrendered life. Let me say this. In James 4, it speaks, verse 7, it says, Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. It has to happen in that order. Submission to God before you resist the enemy. If you're not fully submitted to God, you have no legal basis for the enemy to flee from you. 
There's no basis. And it, it's very interesting that, and, and I'm just going to get into something here that I know is going to get some people a little bit upset, but I want you to hear me out because this is a false teaching that's in the church right now. When you look at the Apostle Paul and how he addressed principalities and powers, now I recognize that he's given us authority to cast out demons. I get that. I do it. I believe in it. I've done it hundreds of times. In fact, sometimes I've seen four or 500 people in a single meeting set free and delivered. So I can tell you guys, I believe in it. But not all your problems are the devil. You're trying to resist the devil. You're fighting, you're binding the spirit of Jezebel and the spirit of Behemoth and Leviathan and everything else when the problem is you. You're not surrendered. You're not submitted. You're living in sin. Self is on the throne of your heart and your life. You're offended. You've got unforgiveness. You've got bitterness in your life. And because of that, the enemy has legal access into your life. And it's only as you submit to God that those legal grounds are taken from him. I I read Ephesians 6 where Paul talks about standing against the enemy, standing our ground against the enemy. This is the passage when he refers to the whole armor of God. At that time, Paul was most likely in a prison in Rome, and he would have been chained to a, a Roman guard. And so as he maybe looked up, he saw the, the armor that this guard was wearing, and he got a, a revelation, a correlation, so to speak, of how this applies to the life of the believer. And the very first thing that he said, right, is to make sure that you have your waist buckled with the belt truth. Make sure that you have the full body armor or the breastplate of righteousness. And then he says, and have your feet shod or covered with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then he says, above all, which is actually not a good translation, the word Greek actually means in addition to this, Make sure you take up the shield of what? Faith, right? That you may quench the attacks, the fiery darts of the enemy, right? And then he says that you are to make sure that you have the helmet of salvation on and that you have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And every example that Paul gives in that particular narrative when he's talking about fighting the enemy and overcoming the enemy has to do with our personal position in terms of faith and righteousness in God. Are we depending on God? He didn't say, all right, guys, I'm going to teach you how to overcome the devil. Come to my class and I'll show you how 99 ways the spirit of Jezebel is in operation. Paul never even talked about Jezebel. He never addressed it. There's only one time in the New Testament where Jezebel is used, and it's not even referring to a a spirit. It's referring to a person, that woman, Jezebel. You know, she's like a Jezebel, this woman who was in the church in Thyatira. So, guys, what has happened in many respects today is we're going around chasing demons. We're going around trying to deal with stuff. And the truth of the matter is, even though, yes, we can come under attack, the enemy's his fiery darts, but how do we respond to that? We lift up the shield of faith. 
We lift up the field of the shield of faith, which will extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. The shield of faith, the faith in God, right? Faith in God will protect me, will keep me from the attacks of the enemy. I'm trusting in God. I'm looking to God. How, how do we look to God? How do we trust in God? We pray. Sometimes it's, Lord, thank you. Sometimes it's, we use the name of Jesus. Satan, get behind me. I understand that. I get that. Sometimes we bind. I get that. But the point I'm trying to make here is we can't bind. We have no authority. The enemy won't listen to us until we, first and foremost, are in a place of absolute surrender and submission and dependence on God. Resist the devil and he will flee. No, submit to God, then resist the devil and he will flee. Unconfessed, unrepentant sin, ungodly soul ties, unforgiveness, you know, um, activity in the occult, even possessing things connected to the occult and so forth can give the enemy legal access into our lives. Absolutely. We talk about that when we do freedom encounters. You know, the stuff we do. Soul ties is huge. People that we're connected to that are ungodly, that we shouldn't be connected to, and, and, and I mean in a way that it's controlling us and it's dominating us. So what happens is we have to come to a place where we recognize that the door is shut and bolted against the enemy through repentance, renunciation, breaking soul ties, extending forgiveness. These are the things, and we have to come to that place where we look at ourselves. We look at my walk. I look at my relationship with God. Am I a person that maybe I'm just not living in faith? Maybe I'm just not spending time in prayer. It's, guys, the, the power of the Holy Spirit will never be experienced in our lives unless we're spending time in prayer. Jesus went away and he prayed, he prayed, he prayed. After healing people, he went away to top up, to fuel up again, so to speak, to be full of the Spirit through prayer, through seeking God in our personal lives. You know, if we just pray when we come to church, if we just worship when we're at church, if we just pray, you know, when I go to a prayer meeting, but we have no prayer life, we have no private, personal prayer life. Yes, Jesus prayed with the disciples. But Jesus prayed in private. I had, a, a, and he told us, when you enter your prayer closet, he didn't say, if you enter your prayer closet. He said, when you enter your prayer closet, say, you're going to have a private place as, as my followers. You are going to get alone with my father. You are going to commune with him. You're going to have a time. You see, when we are fully submitted to God, you know what happens? Wow. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. One translation says, when a man pleases the Lord, he, the Lord, causes his enemies to make peace with him. I think of the story in the Old Testament of King Jehoshaphat. I'm going to read starting... at 2 Chronicles 17. Let's look at verses 3 through 6 and then verse 10. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Come on now. The Lord was with him. Why? 
because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but he sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. Look at this. The Lord established the kingdom under his control. Wow. One, one of the other translations says, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. Wow. Jesus said, behold, I give to you a kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He wants to give us a kingdom, guys. All the power, all the resources, all that is available in his kingdom. The Lord established the kingdom in his hand. And what happened? Because of this, people brought gifts to him. He had favor. He had great wealth. He had honor. His heart was devoted. Notice that. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. And then look what happened. Okay, look at this, verse 10. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the land surrounding Judah, so they did not go to war against Jehoshaphat. Wow. He makes wars to cease. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Guys, if you're constantly in turmoil, if you're constantly in a place of disarray and disorder and confusion, then please understand that that's not the way of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God oh, is, start that again, all right? The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. And God says, listen to this, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, he said, don't be anxious about anything, but everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends, which surpasses all human understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Amen? You coming to bed, hon? Yep, honey, I'll be right there. Just got to turn out the light. Ow! Ow! Some things never change, like your kids always leaving tiny toys on the floor for you to step on, and Geico saving folks lots of money on their car insurance. Sweetie, I think I left the downstairs light on. P please don't make me go. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Last time when you were at the pump, did you catch yourself thinking, why am I spending all my money on gas? Drive less, save more. Ride Coda. The new transit app makes riding Coda as easy as tap, tap, go. Plus, we'll help you get started with a $4.50 account credit when you download the transit app and set up your Coda account. What are you waiting for? Download the transit app today. Learn more at Coda.com slash transit app.